Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining together. Thank you for coming. This morning, I would like to uh, continue with a metaphor that Kosen introduced uh, in his talk last week during the during the one day sit. And it was a metaphor of wisdom, compassion, and vow. Uh, compassion being fuel, wisdom being the uh, igniting light, the flame, and vow being the wick. So the wick, the vow being the element that allows wisdom and compassion to manifest in the world. The, the wick being the the uh, creating the field where wisdom and compassion can function. Once a flame is on the wick, we can direct, we can direct it, we can move the candle here, move the candle there. We can apply some intention to it. So there's something very practical about this wick, about vow, practical and necessary uh, for bodhisattvas to be active in the world, for their for their vows to function and have uh, effect in the world. So I want to talk a little bit more about this wick. The first thing that that uh, came up for me when I when I was thinking about the wick is, if if my vow is a wick, I think my candle might need some cheatening. And for those of you who don't know what a cheatin' is, a cheatin' is the person who cares for the altars in in a Zen temple, or we do this in our homes now. Those of us who have altars, and one of the things that the cheaten does. So cheaten is the person and also we use it as a verb. So one of the things the cheaten does with the with the candle, you know, over time, you light a candle and it, the wax drips down and uh, the center of the candle gets deeper and deeper and the wick gets short, it gets blackened and curled up on itself. And it becomes difficult to light. So here's a here's a moment of confession. I'd like to show you my candle. It's all caved in. Wick, but you can barely see it. It's this little black uh, calcified nub at the bottom. You can get away with this for a few days, but after a while, you can't light the candle anymore. So the uh, the wick needs the candle, and the wick needs to need to be cared for. So two questions I had were: How do we? Uh, and Kosen talked a little bit about this in 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 his talk. How do we? 
cultivate the conditions for vow to emerge for vow to emerge and then how do we care for those conditions in an ongoing way For me, vow, a vow is not something that we construct. We can't think our way to a vow. We can't, I actually can't convince myself towards a vow. I can't convince others to live a life of vow. All I can do is cultivate conditions that are conducive for, uh, for a vow to emerge. You know, we've talked before, and I know Tia would, would talk about, you know, moments of insight and moments of awakening as these kind of instances of grace. You know, they're, they're visited on us almost by accident. We can't, we can't bring them on. All we can do is adjust our lives so that we become more accident prone. And I think of vow in my own, own life as in, in a similar way. Vow is not something that I generate out of my own power. It's something that happens in community, in relationship with others. And through a practice that cultivates the conditions. Even the vows at the end of this, at the end of my talk, we will chant the Bodhisattva vows. You know, I vow beings are numberless. I vow to free them. And even though these vows are articulated in words, the true articulation of the vow is not in the words. The language of the vow is not the true articulation of the vow. the true articulation of the vow happens below the discriminating mind. Almost like a tectonic plate that's moving slowly under the Earth's surface. It's below our perception. There's a, a line in the Jewel Mir Samadhi, which I feel points to this. You know, the meaning is not in the words but it responds to the inquiring impulse. So the words describe the vow. But the vow itself emerges out of a out of deeper conditions.
out of a sense of openness and curiosity. Not control. So vow responds to care and cultivation and curiosity, not control. I can't engineer my vows. They will come forth as I'm open to them. So one thing I wanted to talk about today in terms of how to practice with cultivating and caring for the conditions that support vow uh, is by talking about control. For me, when I try to control a situation, it gets in the way of any vow to emerge. When we try to control, when we imagine that we can control, and when our actions spring out of that deluded imagination, I feel we actually constrict the possibilities. We constrict the field where vow can come up. Our vow can't control, uh, our vow can't grow in that, uh, in that field when it's crowded with our desire to control. And of course, we also do harm when we move towards control. So some of the concrete ways that we can care for and cultivate the conditions for vow to emerge are things I've talked about before in, in previous talks, practices of confession, of repentance, precepts, the practices that illuminate all those areas where we try to come from a, a sense of separation or control. This past week, I there was an incident where I acted hastily uh, with a very subtle way of trying to control a situation and I harmed somebody. And fortunately, I got very immediate feedback about that. And I worked to repair and I apologized and, you know, clean up my mess as best as I could. So that was, for me, a very alive example of how uh, I wasn't caring for my vow and I moved forward anyway. Somebody got harmed. They let me know about it. I acknowledged what I did. 
And then in that space, I could feel a vow come forward again. There was room in my life for it to, to move. You know, the wick came up through the, through the wax again and it was available for, uh, for a match. I think also Soto Zen practice and our style of meditation, which we call Shikantaza, are really helpful ways of illuminating our inclination and tendency to control. You know, last way, you know, the retreat we did last week, you know, uh, something like a one day sit or a sashin, the schedule, the, the silence that we encourage. In a way, all these uh, forms are set up to frustrate our attempts to control. You know, we'll have this long schedule from five in the morning to nine at night. And we start out struggling with the schedule. Um, I'll speak for myself. I start out struggling with the schedule. And at a certain point, uh, if I'm lucky, I surrender and I give up the struggle. And I, I, I relax into it. Same way with the silence. I remember the very first one day sit I did. I was, the, the silence was the hardest part for me. My mind so wanted to comment and make sense of everything that was happening to me, happening to me. I really needed, there was this deep desire to define my experience, to tell it to somebody else. Hopefully they would commiserate with me. And that was not in the cards. And so all these little, all my grasping hands of control eventually quieted down. And I think Zazen, Shikantaza can function in the same way as a as a practice that challenges every inclination we have to control to control a situation, control our mind. I like to read. Uh, from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it's a common, it's a common passage, and I think other people have read from this before. But I, I want to think of it this time in, in terms of uh, looking at the relationship between control 
and vow and what letting go of control enables, allows to happen. So I'll read this section. This is from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Even though you try to put people under some control, it is impossible. You cannot do it. The best way to control people is to encourage them to be mischievous. Then they will be in control in its wider sense. To give your sheep or cow a large, spacious meadow is the way to control them. So it is with people. First, let them do what they want and watch them. This is the best policy. To ignore them is not good. That is the worst, po that is the worst policy. The second worst is trying to control them. The best one is just to watch them, just to watch them without trying to control them. The same way works for you yourself as well. If you want to obtain perfect calmness in your zazen, you should not be bothered by the various images you find in your mind. Let them come, let them go. Then they will be under control. Air quotes are mine. But this policy is not so easy. I like that he uses the word policy. It sounds easy, but it requires some special effort. How to make this, this kind of effort is the secret of practice. Suppose you are sitting under some extraordinary circumstances. Ex extraordinary circumstances. such as a pandemic or struggling for racial and social justice in, in a society that is founded on systems that would deny them as a possibly treacherous and traumatic election looms. These are just examples of extraordinary circumstances. If you try to calm your mind, you will be unable to sit. And if you try not to be disturbed, your effort will not be the right effort. The only effort that will help you is to count your breathing or to concentrate on your inhaling and exhaling. We say concentration, but to concentrate your mind on something is not the true purpose of Zen. The true purpose is to see things as they are to observe things as they are and to let everything go as it goes. This is to put everything under control in its widest sense. So I think he's talking about, you know, he's using control in two ways here. He's talking about the, the control of the, of the small mind that wants to, that is resisting life as it's happening. And then he's talking about this control in the wider sense, which for me is talking about, you know, big mind. And for me, that, that control is actually not control. Um, 
but is actually experienced as, you could say, an, an alignment of our intention and these bodhisattva vows. Our intention and these vows arise and we're moving and responding to life as it is. So maybe that could be experienced as an ease or a capacity to respond which maybe has a, a, a flavor of uh, functioning, in, functioning in the world, not so much control. So I really want to challenge the, that, that idea of control here. Um, so in this way, you know, the practice of shikintaza letting our experience emerge as it is without trying to manipulate it allows space for vow to come up and again i want to get more specific now when i'm talking about vow and i'll speak in terms of the bodhisattva vows the vow to free all beings as our capacity to be with what comes up, to be specifically to be with our own suffering, without trying to fix it, without holding on to it, without pushing it away, allowing it to be as it is, that capacity it's an enlarging capacity that enables us to be with the suffering of others. And I think here is where the, you know, the original metaphor of the, of the, of the wick and the fuel and the flame we really start to see these three aspects as uh, three necessary legs of a stool. We are with our own suffering. So there's a request to be compassionate to our own suffering. And that comes along with a desire, a vow to free others from suffering, which goes along with seeing others as not separate. So for me, Shikintaza really is this kind of uh, crucible where these three aspects come up and we experience them in Zazen and then we get up and then we bring that into the world. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them.
again, we get to practice this in Zazen. We see our, we see the small mind over and over trying to control, manipulate the situation. We see how that causes suffering. We see how that harms. We see over and over again the mind's subtle and not so subtle ways it, it splits the world into self and other. over and over again in shikantaza we sit there and watch this we watch the mind split our knees hurt and we split that experience off and want to change it or a thought emerges and we split that thought off from the rest of our experience trying to manipulate it we see the relentlessness of a mind that wants to divide life and we experience the humanness of our mind that wants to divide life. So for me, that's experienced as, uh, you know, in one sense, we, we taste the suffering of that. And there's also a sense of uh, appreciation and compassion for all of us as we as we divide the world this way again an enlarging capacity that emerges out of letting things be as they are dharma gates are boundless i vow to enter them Again, this vow really points to the kind of the wondrous appreciation that comes from, almost comes from observing, observing the ebb and flow of life. We see how we grasp onto it and try to arrest life, and then we can open our hand and let this ebb and flow move and see all these ebbings, all these flowings as opportunities to be with life. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. 
for me, this kind of brings me back to the chant that we did at the beginning of the talk. We experience the support of ancestors who came before us, who cultivated conditions in their life for vow to emerge and to flourish. And we have an opportunity to feel that support and experience the same vow. So I'd like to close again from a short talk from this book. I'm really uh, kind of loving this book lately, Dogen's Extensive Record, which is a collection of very short talks, some as short as a sentence, that Dogen gave later in his life. And this one's called Plenty of Enlightenment. Dharma Hall Discourse number 82. The spiritual root having no front or back, two or three scoops of great enlightenment have been cooked to make porridge with milk and offered to the monks in the ten directions. And then it says, after a pause, Dogen said, there is plenty, really plenty. Once we penetrate the ebb and flow of situations, the present resembles the ancient. Since we have a single storehouse world of sentient beings, there is a fist like a thunderclap and grandmotherly mind. Once we penetrate the ebb and flow of situations, the present resembles the ancient. Since we have a single storehouse world of sentient beings, our one life, there is a fist like a thunderclap and grandmotherly mind. And there's a note Footnote, a fist like a thunderclap and grandmotherly mind are two approaches, grasping and granting to teaching and cultivating awakening in students. When I first read it, I thought of wisdom and insight, the fist like a thunderclap and grandmotherly mind as compassion. And the single storehouse world of, sent of sentient beings as, as the actually the endless field 
where our vows function. They function in the world of sentient beings. So, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.